Welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast, featuring interviews with health and wellness professionals empowering you to take control of your health and happiness. Feel better, look better, and live better today by subscribing right now for new episodes every week. The Wellness Plus Podcast is brought to you by wellnessplus.tv and made possible by the generous donations of Psyche Truth Patreon supporters. So first and foremost, I was thinking... Uh, we could get into maybe a little bit about your practice, and I know you guys do the nutrient or nutrition infusions. What is it? Yeah. Vitamin infusions. Yeah, they've got several names. Super. Okay. Well, yeah. So, like, what what can you tell us about that? Well, I'm gonna tell you a lot about it, so we'll we'll kind of keep it simple. But um, the the vitamin infusion thing is this what they're commonly called vitamin infusions. It's gotten really popular, probably in the last two years. More and more vitamin shops keep popping up as far as uh, we'll do infusions and things. And um, they're they're good, but I think they're a little over popularized right now. People mm-hmm. are just doing them to they think they make them feel better or something. But what we do at my practice is a little more specialized, a lot more IV vitamins, a lot higher dosages, and a lot different versions. Um, So I've written specific protocols for people's specific illnesses, chronic fatigue, mitochondria, that kind of stuff. And um, I I think the big difference between what we do and what some of the other places do, not that what the other places do are bad, is that um, if, if you're just doing vitamins for fun, then do you really need them? Because in general, what I tell my patients is you should never feel better when you get a vitamin infusion. You shouldn't. It's vitamins. You should already have those vitamins in your system. So if you get a vitamin infusion and you feel better, you should really be asking yourself, why, why do I feel better? Because I should already have B12 and magnesium and vitamin C and all that stuff in my system. And they're all water-soluble nutrients, so you should mostly be able to urinate them out. So you should get a surge of vitamins, not necessarily feel any better, and then you should pee them out. So if you get a vitamin infusion and you feel better, really kind of figuring out why don't I have that nutrient, it always goes back to gut function. So in in America, we're all eating that. We're not, we're all, not us. (laughs) But um, most people are eating terrible diet, hamburgers, french fries, just lots of calories without a lot of nutrition. So it's a common misconception that obese people are well-nourished. Obese people are usually malnourished. They don't have enough nutrients. Yes, they may have too many calories, but they're all empty calories that may taste good, but they're they're bad for the body. So by the time we get people, generally we have um, somewhat sicker people. We've got autoimmune people, chronic fatigue people, people that have been to multiple doctors before they end up at our office. So we will often prescribe a vitamin infusion protocol for them in order to kind of, I tell my patients, I just like cheating. No one needs vitamin infusions in order to get better. But if you want to heal, you need vitamins and nutrients. But in order to um, get those vitamins and nutrients, you have to be able to absorb them. Mm-hmm. Well, if your gut is a wreck and you can't absorb your nutrients, then you can't heal and repair. So it's a much longer process to do it without infusions. And some of these people have been sick for decades. We've seen some dramatic turnarounds with people in vitamin infusions. We've seen some not so dramatic turnarounds for people. But we've had people after, uh, there's this one girl that, that comes to the top of my head. And I don't like to talk about too many of the miracle stories because not all stories are like this. But when you get a really big slam dunk and there's no possibility of placebo effect, it's a pretty powerful feedback to the practitioner and the patient. So one patient in general, um, she's a young girl, healthy, but she was diagnosed with um, both of her hips were eroding from an autoimmune condition. And she ultimately had to get hip replacement, but we tried everything to reverse the autoimmune condition before she needed that. But it was just a little too late that we caught it. So we worked with her for a year. She was just feeling better and better and better, kept getting better. And then we did one of her advanced testing and found out like, 
even though we had done a lot of work in the past year, she still had major detox issues, major gut issues. And so ultimately we decided, look, you're about to go through this hip replacement. We should probably get some nutrients on board before you go through the hip replacement. Let's go ahead and do the infusion. And she said, after the very first one, she came back and she goes, Dr. Roop, I didn't realize how tired I was <laughs> because I feel so much better after that first one. And her husband, who always comes with her, they're, they're very sweet. He looks at me and he goes, is there anything you can do to slow her down? Because now she's <laughs> too much. So that's one of those miracle stories that's amazing. And she's done really well with the infusion. She just keeps feeling better and better. Wow. But that once again rewinds and goes, well, you've been working with her for a year. Why why didn't we get that nutrient on board? What are we still missing in our gut that we need to fix? So right. maybe we maybe she just had a backlog of toxins and getting those IV detox components helped wash out those toxins and now she's not suffering from them. So who? it's hard to tell when you do multiple components at once which one they really, really needed. Did they really need the B12 or did they need the glutathione? There's so many different components to it. So luckily nowadays with the lab testing that we have access to, you can test almost all those levels. So with these vitamin shops, you showing up and saying, oh, I want a Myers, I want an immune, like you're just randomly getting vitamins. So one of the things we do specifically is we do testing and see, do you even need this? I don't want to waste your money. This stuff is expensive. I would rather you do this with food than with IV nutrients because we'd rather teach you to do this in the long run than just you dependent on IV infusions. Right. So let's do the testing and see how bad your system is, what you truly need. Now, I don't do any, um, I don't believe in doing testing and then coming up with a specific protocol just because of someone's one test. I don't think our testing is that good to determine that. What we do is we do the testing and ultimately figure out like what systems are working the poorest. Is the liver not detoxifying well? Is the gut completely wrecked? Is the mitochondria, the things that make energy inside of the cell, are they broken? Which ones do we need to focus on? And so I don't do like specific, I have general protocols for general conditions. But there's a lot of different components out there. The most common components that people will see is the Myers cocktail and glutathione. That's the two most standard. The Myers cocktail has the whole B vitamin family, some extra B12, magnesium, and vitamin C. And so that's a pretty good one. It powers detox pathways. It powers energy. So um, a lot of people use it for hangovers and stuff. It works <laughs> really well for hangovers. Not that anyone should be doing that. But if you happen to drink too much and if you happen to <laughs> get one accident, of these. Of ex course. Exactly. You would feel better if you happen <laughs> yeah. to do that. And, um, and then, of course, with hangovers, you're dehydrated. So a little bit of fluid helps. Yeah. And then glutathione is a really powerful detoxifier. It is the body's most important detoxifying agent. And it's the main thing that burns out in alcohol. Now, we use alcohol as the example, but really almost any and every toxin uses glutathione to get destroyed and ultimately eliminated. Right. And it's what actually kills people in Tylenol overdose. Most people don't know that. You don't really die from the Tylenol overdose. That's partially true. What mainly you die from is when you run out of glutathione, your body can't detoxify Tylenol the correct uh, way. Okay. And so it, it detoxifies it the wrong way, which makes a liver toxin, and then you die. Okay, uh -huh. miserable, unfortunate That's kind of interesting. Is that kind of common for like a lot of different overdose issues not, or is it only a very minute? Yeah, not really. Not that I know of. I mean, of course, toxic load is part of it, but really a bigger part of it is a, a drug at a reasonable dose does one thing at an excessive dose, pushes that too far, right. stops the heart, throws the electrical conduction into a different pathway. Okay. But a lot of things people don't know is that the ER has been using IV vitamins for a long time. So even though conventional medicine doctors may say, oh, this is hogwash, it's not needed, in the IV or in the ER, ER, every ER stocks IV and acetylcysteine, which you know a lot about supplements. So you've probably heard of acetylcysteine mm -hmm. or NAC. Yeah. NAC is the precursor to glutathione. 
Right, right. So when someone comes in with Tylenol overdose in the ER, they're giving them a mega dose of N-acetylcysteine in order to hope they can power enough glutathione to detoxify the Tylenol the correct way so they don't overdose, so they don't go down the toxic pathway, basically. So then one of the reasonable questions is, well, why don't they stop glutathione since it's more active? And the reason why is because glutathione doesn't have as good of a shelf life or mm. N-acetylcysteine can sit there. And N-acetylcysteine is a drug made by a pharmaceutical company called Mucamist, and glutathione is not because it's a body. Right, right. So they can't really patent it. Is it like, for NAC, can you buy that, like, over the counter? Like, you can, just, you can just buy it, right? Yeah, N-acetylcysteine, the <laughs> way we usually recommend it is about 600 milligrams twice a day. You can find 900 milligrams twice a day, and anyone and everyone can take NAC. I took it for years. Um, I didn't. I don't really trust many of the glutathione supplements over the counter, mm-hmm. and the reason why is because glutathione is a very unstable molecule, and it's very hard to absorb. So it's kind of a weird contradiction. The body doesn't want things that are too active, because if it sees something that's too active, it thinks it's a toxin, so it tries to break it down before it enters the body. So glutathione is one of those things that's actually broken down before it enters the, the bloodstream. So that's why most glutathione products are complete crap and don't actually work. Oh, okay. An easy way to test it, not that I recommend, but an easy way <laughs> to test it is once again, get hungover and take more glutathione. It should cure your hangover within an hour, and if it doesn't, it's not real. Either it's not real or your body's not able to utilize it. So they can say liposomal, they can say enteric, they can say whatever they want to, but the glutathione has to get into the bloodstream one way or another. So even if it is a not good glutathione product, the, the studies show that you actually get some glutathione boosting out of it, but N-acetylcysteine is much more absorbable and easy to take, and it's actually cheaper than glutathione. So for the most part, I tell people to take N-acetylcysteine, but in our office we carry, and I only trust one brand, not that I've tried any other brand. This is the one brand we've experimented on with hangovers, and it works really well. So I trust this brand. I'm not saying the other brands are bad, but I know <laughs> this, this one's... brand. Yeah, we get it from a pharmacy in Alabama, of all places. Mm. And... Um, so the glutathione we use from them is 250 milligrams twice a day, um, a lot different dose than the N-acetylcysteine, but it works really well. So I take it for just kind of general maintenance. I do a lot of triathlons and stuff, right. and endurance sports, especially soccer included. We, we exercise too much really there. Mm-hmm. So there's a balance of going too far too much because exercise is oxidative stress and oxidative stress can damage the body. So if you don't have enough glutathione, that's one of the reasons why endurance athletes kind of burn out. If mm. you ran out of glutathione, you just can't produce enough. So anyone that's doing an endurance athlete or even someone that does that takes CrossFit seriously or Orange Theory or someone that does a lot of exercise really per week. Really high intensity yes, stuff. Support your glutathione because you every time you exercise, you're creating toxic byproducts. Your own body creates toxic byproducts that need to be taken care of. Your car is no different. If your car is on, it's making exhaust, mm-hmm. right? If it's off, it's not. If you're going really fast or redlining it, it's making more exhaust. So it needs more detox support. So your body's no different. The harder you run it, the more detox right. support you need. That makes sense. I never actually even thought about it that way. That makes a lot of sense. That's cool. Um, so with the uh, with the nutrients or the vitamin infusions, mm-hmm. do most people, are they just coming in for like kind of like a shock to the system? Like they want to really like flush it out quick? And it's not as much of like a long-term fix, right? Like you'd rather, like you said, get it from the natural food source or whatever because you should be getting all these nutrients from your diet. Correct. Ideally. Most of us aren't, unfortunately. But that's like, that's the end goal, Mm -hmm. right? Is there any like... um, is there any particular or specific vitamins that are almost always like in the red for people where they're not getting enough? Riboflavin is a common, so B vitamins. B vitamins are almost always the common. That's what I was going to ask. I've always, I feel like vitamin B is like 
no one ever gets enough, right? It's because it's water soluble, so your body has no way to store oh, it. Oh, so it's just always flushing correct, it out. Correct, okay. correct. So that's why people think that, oh, I take a multi or I take a B complex and my urine turns yellow, and so that means I didn't do anything with it. Well, yeah, you got a surge of it. If you could drink that B vitamin for 24 hours, then you wouldn't get yellow urine. Right. So if you want to do that, great, that's fine. But if you're going to take a B vitamin supplement, you're going to get a surge of it. And if it ends up in your urine, that tells you that you did absorb it and that your body might have used it and urinated it out. You don't really know. Right. Um, some people will notice that when they're first starting down a gut healing pathway that their urine may not turn yellow and then it does turn yellow. And so that's a way to say that, okay, I did absorb the riboflavin. The B2 is the main one that turns yellow. So mm -hmm. I generally recommend people take the B complex, right. not any B vitamin in particular. The B complex is nice and balanced. It's all the Bs you need, unless you're doing specific testing saying you need one more than the other, in which case I still use the complex and fix the gut so they absorb everything. But um, just because your urine's telling, turning yellow doesn't mean you absorbed all the B vitamins. It's only riboflavin, That's the only B, which is B2. And so B2 turns yellow in the urine. B2 is a specific one because yeast overgrowth, yeast in general in our bowels love, yeast in general, love B2. They love eating riboflavin. So one of the common ones to be low in is actually riboflavin. And the B vitamins are used, I mean, if you really look at where they're used in biochemistry, they're used everywhere. Yeah. They're used in energy pathways. They're used in detox pathways. They're used everywhere. And they're a kamikaze vitamin of sorts. So they get used and then they get dumped and then you need another one to, to continue powering it. Right. So me, myself, when I first started kind of getting into functional medicine doing this this fancy testing one of my levels was a homocysteine level that was really elevated and i didn't know anything about homocysteine we weren't taught this in med school or residency well come to find out i have some genetic defects that means i don't process b vitamins very well so my homocysteine was 14 and it should ideally be under eight for everyone for everyone so if you have a homocysteine level it needs to be under eight and if it's not you're not good enough <laughs> and so mine was 14 and I didn't know what I was doing back then, but I added a B complex vitamin and all of a sudden boop, it dropped to seven. Wow. And then my inflammation dropped, my energy got better, all kinds of things got better. So, um, so the homocysteine marker is a marker of our detox pathways, but it's a better marker of just kind of B vitamin status. It is a cheap marker that anyone and everyone can do. I think it might be like 20 bucks from a lab. Oh, wow. Anyone and everyone can do, any doctor's office can order it. And it's a great assessment of B vitamins. Now, the other problem with homocysteine is that if it's normal, it doesn't necessarily mean that your B vitamins are good. There's <coughs> other reasons to have a false normal. Oh, but okay. if it's elevated, it's definitely, definitely a problem. Yep. Okay. And your B vitamins always need to have methylfolate, not regular folate. So folate, and this is still kind of controversial, but regular folate is found in vegetables and fruits and all kinds of meats and basically everything. Mm -hmm. But it's heavily fortified in processed foods. So the worse you eat, the better your folate levels are, That's which is backwards. Yeah. Yes. The highest source of folic acid is actually Cap'n Crunch cereal, oh, really? according to the best research I can do. That's the highest source. And needless to say, Cap'n Crunch is not the healthiest of cereals, <laughs> right, or foods in general. Not quite. So in our industry, in our, in our, uh, you may not know this, that cereal was actually banned for a while when it was first created because it was so um, devoid of nutrients. Right. And they were like, whoa, this is going to cause a problem in America. So they took cereals off the market. And then the cereal companies came back and said, oh, well, we'll fortify, we'll add vitamins to it in order to not make it nutrient hmm. devoid. And so one of the big nutrients they added in it was folic acid. So no one's ever low in folic acid, but there's a key step in activating the folic acid into methylfolate that's important. And there's some research, I want to say it's controversial, but there's some research suggesting that if your folate levels are too high, it actually blocks up 
the ability to methylate it further. So it's a it's kind of a um, a worsening a feed forward cycle that's worsening oh, wow. over time. That's pretty interesting. So always flip over the, your bottle of B complex, and it should it usually says folic acid or folate, same thing, and then in parentheses it should say L methylfolate or L five methyl tetrahydrofolate, or if it says five S methyl tetrahydrofolate, that's okay. It should say six S five S. Um, anyway, that's not my favorite version. My favorite version it should say L five methylfolate or mm -hmm. metafolin. Right, and if so, if it doesn't have the methyl, it's just straight folate. You That's don't right. want that. Find a right? different one. That's no Throw good. it away. You don't need it. Oh wow! I'm gonna start looking. I need to check. <laughs> I'm gonna go check my vitamin B stuff right now, man. God. And I'm not a big fan of methyl B12. So almost all the good B complexes that have methyl folate also have methyl B12. The, the amount of methyl B12 that's normally in the, the B complex isn't enough to upset people, but some people are very sensitive to methyl B12. So if someone is taking B12, since everyone knows, like, oh, you've got to take the methylated folate, mm -hmm. the same thing happened to B12. Oh, if you're going to take B12, you've got to take the methyl folate. That is not true. We need to dispel that myth and stop. Oh. More people, so you will run into more problems using methyl B12 than not. You can use any regular B12, and your body will use it just perfectly fine. Methyl B12 can actually overpower the methylation cycle and cause anxiety, irritability, OCD, poor sleep, weird, weird brain irritation stuff. We call that overmethylation. So I, I usually steer people away from methyl B12. If there's a small amount in your B complex, you're fine. Yeah. Dang, that's super interesting, though. That's good to know because I need to go check my stuff because I don't know if and, I looked for the methyl thing. Well, there's genetic. So the 23andMe, we use a lot of the 23andMe. Yeah, things. I was going to ask mm -hmm. about that because I know you were talking about doing the genetic testing and mm -hmm. stuff, and I haven't done it myself. I've been wanting to do some kind of genetic testing to kind of just see because it sounds super interesting. Just in general, it's cool. Yeah. But then, like, all of the different, a lot of, like, medical practitioners and everyone are starting to utilize it pretty heavily in their in their practice and so that's why so do you guys do you guys take information from like 23andme and then kind of do your own stuff with it right right so a lot so in my opinion opinion um genetics are being overutilized right mm -hmm. now and people are taking this really deep right. dive making outrageous claims based on genetics I can, I, I've seen two patients with identical genes look totally different on their blood work because if, if you have a bunch of genetic defects, but you're eating vegan, perfectly clean, and then you take the same genetic defect person and feed them cheeseburgers and french fries, yeah. guess what? One person's going to be way sicker. Right. So it, your genes do not make you, your environment makes you. It's mm -hmm. something, it's been estimated that 70% of your genes is actually just your environment and then mm -hmm. 20 to 30% is actually your genes and how it interferes. Yeah, I I was reading or listening to something recently, and it was talking about kind of environmental factors on your genes and how I think they did studies where they took like twins and stuff or somehow were able to track the markers and they found like changes in their genetic structure or something right through environmental so stress proteomics. factors maybe. So you can't change the DNA itself, right. but just because you have a DNA sequence doesn't mean it's actually utilized. Right, so maybe like it's kind of like with... Um, they talk about certain uh, genes getting activated. Correct. What's turned on, turned off. Right. So it's kind of like that. So the ApoE4 is a good example of that. Yeah. You know about ApoE4. Yeah, ApoE4 <laughs> is like huge. Yeah. So ApoE4 is the dementia gene. Mm -hmm. It is the Alzheimer's gene. It is the inflammation gene, the heart attack gene, the pretty much everything bad. Yeah, it's like the I've got one gene. copy. It is terrible. I've got one copy. And it's not uncommon to have one copy. Yeah. Having two copies is very unfortunate, and you need to be on like the cleanest diet ever. Because right. your Alzheimer's risk is something like 30 times more with two 
copies. Don't wow. quote me on that. And with one <laughs> copy, it's only like three or four times. But it, the the deal is that you have a second gene. So ApoE4, you've got two possibilities. You can have a normal one, ApoE4, or two copies. The reason why the two copies is really hard is because you don't really have a normal one to rely on. Right. So one of the two is always going to be active, although you can try to kind of tame down how much it's turned on. So in general, sugars and processed foods activate ApoE4. So if you have the gene and you stop eating those things, then the inflammation and Alzheimer's risk, dementia risk, all that goes away. And I saw it in my blood work. So my blood work had a lot of inflammation. I did my CRP levels around eight when I first started. And that's ridiculous. Most of my patients, even the autoimmune nightmares that I can get, their CRP is like four or five. Mine was eight when I started this whole journey. I was eating corn dogs and sandwiches <laughs> and everything under the sun. I didn't know anything. And so, um, but I had an ApoE4. So as soon as I changed my diet, fixed that stuff, the CRP dropped fairly quickly. It took me a couple of years because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. But if you treat your body right and activate the right genes, you can turn off all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Your genes are not your destiny. Right. So I believe too many doctors are over-utilizing genetics. So to answer your earlier question, we use 23andMe. With 23andMe, we usually tell people just to do the regular ancestry one. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to do the health DNA one. They charge an extra 100 bucks for that. So I tell people, watch 23andMe. They'll do sales all the time. Sometimes they'll drop the price down to 75 Sometimes even 50 is the lowest I've seen it. And if you get your 23andMe, as soon as you get the results, you let us know, and we can submit it through another free software. And then we get the genes that are actually clinically important that we can do something about with supplementation, diet, those kind of things. And then all the extra stuff that we don't know enough about yet, we just don't even look at. Okay. Here's the genes we know about. Here's what we can modify. There's no reason to even look at the other ones. Because right, right. we know we already want you to eat a clean diet. We already know we want you to exercise and fix your vitamin status. So it, those don't matter. Wow. Only ones we can modulate cool. matter. Uh, yeah, I've been wanting to do it for a while. So I'm going to I'm gonna look into it. And then once you have your data, you have it forever. Right. Yeah, so yeah. as our research expands, well, it'll just expand how much you know about your genes. Yeah, that's what my friend got his done. I think got it for like Christmas last year. Mm-hmm. And so he was looking at it. And it was pretty cool. And you'll always get like different notifications mm-hmm. from them about like... I think you like match like your your point two percent related yeah. to so and so, but it's cool. How much Neanderthal, yeah, you are. exactly. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. But even like all the nutrition and kind of like wellness you can do with it is really yeah. really cool. Because there's some obesity genes. There's the FTO gene. There's some should I watch my saturated fat intake? So uh, I, I'm a big fan of high fat diets, mm-hmm. and I don't think saturated fat is bad. And I shouldn't say I don't think like it's proven now it's not really bad. Right. But some people, if they overconsume saturated fats, it can cause a problem. Okay. And in general, we shouldn't be eating pounds of bacon anyway. Right. Nothing in excess is going to be healthy, of even course. if it is kale. You can't survive off of that. Right, right. Um, and so with the ApoE4, mm-hmm. I was curious, because does that have to do, I know it's the dementia gene. Mm-hmm. And so there was someone, I think she was a doctor from California maybe, but she was talking about she had recently found out she had one of those genes. Mm-hmm. And so she was talking about she had been, like, totally amping up eating, like, broccoli sprouts and different, like, cruciferous cruciferous Cruciferous, vegetables, right? Because of the sulforaphane. Okay, sulforaphane, yeah. Which makes glutathione. Oh, does it? FYI. Is that kind of the the pathway of why it is supposed to help suppress that ApoE4? Absolutely. If you ever smell it, so anyone that ever takes oral glutathione in, like, the liquid form, it smells like ass. It smells nasty. It's a (laughs) sulfur-based antioxidant. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound like it smells too good. Right? So the sulforaphane (laughs) pathway leads to glutathione. Does that have to do, you know how a lot of people eat, like, Brussels sprouts, and then they pee, and they think their pee, like, smells terrible? Yes. Is that (laughs) having to do with the sulforaphane kind of? Asparagus is different. That's a whole other pathway. Because that's not the same kind of Mm. uh, 
vegetable, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a... Yeah, it's uh, broccoli, cauliflower, uh, kale. Um, that's all that's coming. I think maybe cabbage in there, too. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and then because I always, I always like eat a lot of like Brussels sprouts and broccoli mm -hmm. and stuff. That's what I ate for lunch today. Yeah, super good. I did too, actually. I had some <laughs> in my salad. Um, delicious. I mean, I love them. But so, and I was trying to figure out because this a study came out saying that broccoli sprouts have like thirty times the amount of sulforaphane as all those other ones. For you know, the, the sprouted thing is huge right now. I think. Um, but I don't even know. Do you know anything about getting broccoli sprouts? So I no, really I don't know anything specifically about store. broccoli sprouts. Sounds like it might be something you have to sprout. Yeah, on your I own. assume you have to like buy the. I don't know if you just take the broccoli. Okay, so but. this is one of my pet peeves in functional medicine is that we sometimes we almost make things so complicated right. that people are like ah screw it I yeah. can't do that <laughs> yeah. so I'm not going to get any benefit. I don't care how you eat the broccoli. Yeah. I don't care if you just eat, eat it. raw. Exactly, yeah, just, just eat, eat it. it. If you can sprout it and get an extra ten percent benefit by all That's means. That's cool. But. Mark Hyman likes to say that um, he's he's a famous functional medicine physician. In his books, he says that if you can cut the broccoli forty minutes before you cook it, you actually get more nutritional value out of it. What? Yeah. 40 no, minutes? He's, he swears by it. <laughs> I, I think it's 40 minutes. Don't quote That's me on that. But it's some sort of time frame. And every time I'm cutting broccoli, I'm always like, <laughs> thinking about it. But I want to eat it now. So I just throw it in the pot. So you didn't lose nutritional right. value. You, you just, just didn't, didn't get, that, get that extra little piece. Yeah. So I think sometimes in functional medicine, we, we make, we demonize things that are perfectly healthy. Right, right. So like um, another common was, oh, kale is a, um, oh, a goitrogen. It, it makes the thyroid bigger. Mm. It, it slows the thyroid function. Totally false. Really? Totally false. I mean, it is if you consume massive right, quantities. Right. And if you cook it, it removes the goitrogenic effect. But there's no reason you should avoid kale. I don't know anyone that eats enough kale right. to cause a goiter. It's kind of like you could you could kill yourself by drinking too much water. <laughs> exactly. But, like, no one's... No, it's <laughs> don't demonize kale. Kale's yeah. fine. It won't make your thyroid big. Right. If you have thyroid disorder, it's not because you ate kale. Right. You've got another problem. Right. Um, so, yeah, another thing I actually did want to ask you about... Was so with like people's diets. Obviously, diets right now are like huge. They're huge. So everyone has a diet. Everyone has mm -hmm. you know they got the paleo, the keto. You got the mm -hmm. vegetarian, vegan, everything. And people are passionate. Yeah, yeah. About it's, it's like a religion. <laughs> it's like they will protect it with their life. And if That's you say right. anything bad about oh, it, no. it's like fists come out. Yeah, it's crazy. I've never seen. Well, I have seen stuff like it, but not like in. I don't know. It's just crazy to me. But yeah. so I was curious. Like, do you do you have any kind of interest in a specific one of those diets or do you think like one's better than the other or, like anything like that yeah so my number one answer is the best diet is the one that fits you and that you can do so i'm always getting in arguments with these youtube people who um i have a video on reversing atherosclerosis or plaque buildup in the arteries and um, i talk about the diet <coughs> this guy i use one guy as an example and i didn't make it too specific but people always say oh it's, it's all about vegan that's the only way to reverse it and all that but the, and Ornish has, Dean Ornish, uh, I think he's a doctor, uh, Dean Ornish has published research on the vegan diet, low-fat vegan diet reverses atherosclerosis. Absolutely. The research is there. You can't deny it. But good luck following a low-fat vegan diet. I mean, you were eating all day long. Yeah, but say, because you're not getting a ton of... No. So is that a great diet for reversing atherosclerosis? Absolutely. Can you stick to it? Because I couldn't. And <laughs> right. if there's not something I can do, I don't expect my patients to do so yes, there may be one diet is superior to the other for your body, but the most important thing that it, it has to be palatable, you have to enjoy it, you have to love your food. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you're not gonna be able to stick to it. You're gonna yo-yo, you're gonna change around. So 
We use kind of all the diets. Yeah. It's certainly not the hamburger and french fries. Yeah, <laughs> right. Maybe not the American diet. <laughs> but yeah, the most common one we tell people is paleo. Paleo is really easy. It's so common. It's easy to shop for. It's easy to go to restaurants and eat paleo. And it's a very healthy, balanced diet. Um, in general, no one really needs to eat grains. Basically, all the foods that are removed from paleo, we don't really need to survive. So all the foods that are on paleo are perfect for our survival. But what many people get wrong with any of the diets that you choose is the staple of your diet is vegetables. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you freaking call your diet, the staple is vegetables. Right. It should not be, oh, I ate a slab of ribs and there was a broccoli. <laughs> like, no. When you look down at your plate, 70% of it should be vegetables. And they should be multicolored. Maybe yeah. not this one meal multicolored, but throughout the day. We do it with kids where you paint a Roy G. Biv on a paper. And what colors did you get today? And Skittles don't count, right? right. So green, you got your broccoli. Red, you got your tomato. Orange, you got your orange. And so... It's that simple. So in, in, in medicine and in science, we've tried to classify food into their macronutrients, proteins, carbs, and fats. And okay, those are important. Mm -hmm. But now we're actually starting to look a little bit more at the micronutrients. Right. But we've even overclassified the micronutrients. We seem to forget that there are a ton of phytochemicals in the plant that are not quantified on the label. So recently I got in an argument with a carnivore. So I do not agree with the carnivore diet. I was going to ask if you had <laughs> heard you about would. the carnivore diet. That one of sounds I have. wild. So carnivore diet sounds delicious. I'm, I'm watering just thinking about it. <laughs> But, um, and yes, humans are somewhat carnivores, but we're omnivores. We are, um, we are not dogs. We're not wolves. We are not carnivores. We are omnivores. So what someone made a good argument to me was they were watching a presentation or something and someone was like, oh, here's meat and here's vet a vegetable. And you can see how the meat has more nutrients than the vegetable. True fact. But what they didn't list was all the phytochemicals that are in the plant. Phyto meaning plant, chemical. Well, chemical sounds like a bad word, but phytonutrient, I right, guess, is a better right. word. All the phytonutrients that are in the plant that no one quantified. You can quantify the CoQ10 and magnesium and the vitamin C and all of those micronutrients, but you can't forget that there's a lot of micronutrients that are not in meat. Meat is one color, two colors, red, white. Right. That's it. Plants are, oh my gosh, the whole rainbow. Mm -hmm. So you need all those nutrients because they help you in various ways. They feed your complex microbiome. We are not ant we are not wolves. Right. We need the plants. Yeah. So I, I am against the carnivore diet. If someone wants to use it as a like way to reach a goal, I don't think it's that damaging. I just don't think it's a good long-term plan. Right, right. And the most important thing with meat is meat has been demonized. V, it's all vegan mm -hmm. right now. Meat is not bad. What we do to our meat is bad. Yeah, I, I was going to actually bring that up because I heard... Because obviously there was the whole thing, like a lot of different things came out about different meats being having like a high number of like carcinogens and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So obviously like deli meats mm -hmm. are pretty... Like they, they got listed the highest level of like carcinogen, right? They're on like the same level as cigarettes, but that's like heavily processed, like bologna. But don't like forget, that. cigarettes are an as extra special side gate because you're burning it. Right, right, right. So if right, you right. burn and smoke the deli that, meat, they yeah, be that's that was actually going to be what I was going to talk about because I actually read um, that. So like meats, depending on how you cook it, is like a huge factor Absolutely. in how many like the carcinogenic dioxins. levels, right? We call them dioxins. So like you don't want to. Ideally, you don't want to cook it super long. Isn't that right? It, so it doesn't matter if it's long. What matters it's is the heat. black parts. Right, yeah, but say you just don't want it burnt. Correct. So, like, unfortunately, those barbecues. Are the parts we like. I know, that's, <laughs> so that makes barbecue, like, terrible, but it's so good. Yep. Well, so just eat a bunch of broccoli because hey, broccoli yeah. powers the sulforaphane, yeah. and then you can eat your barbecue. That was the other thing I heard is if you, like, layer, like, just cover your stomach in, like, 
greens and different cruciferous vegetables and stuff like that, and then you eat the meat, apparently it totally, like... But how many barbecues in Texas yeah. have you been to where <laughs> broccoli is served? They might have, like, one piece of broccoli. <laughs> Accidentally. The, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not not super common. But if you're making your own meat or cooking your own meat, by all means, if you try to burn it as little as possible. Mm-hmm. But once again, we're, we eat for joy. We eat yeah. for love. So if you have barbecue, you aren't going to die. Right. If you have bro- barbecue for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're probably going to die <laughs> yeah. pretty soon. That's bad. But always try to outweigh it with something beneficial that will power your detox pathways. Right. Broccoli is America's favorite food and is one of the most powerful detox vegetables out there. So by all means, eat broccoli as much as you want. I don't care how you cook it except boiling. Right. Never Boiling's boil no good. Vegetables. Does it kill does it It doesn't kind kill of it necessarily. Up. It's that it get the, the nutrients get soaked into the water oh, and then you pour okay. the water out. So if oh, you want to drink the broccoli drink water, the broccoli broth, <laughs> that's should, that's that should be something they sell. That's nasty. If they got bone broth. <laughs> bone broth is huge now. That the next huge. thing will be the broccoli broth. I'm telling you, man. We you started should, it here. I would say broccoli broth. If yeah, if it get, if that gets big, I'm I'm suing. I want it. <laughs> but um, so kind of going off onto a new topic just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I know you're like you're super into triathlons, mm-hmm. um, mountain biking. I think is another thing. Any, what other? Well, triathlons have consumed everything right it? now. Triathlons. Are I do thing? love mountain biking. I've got a, a corgi dog, so <coughs> oh, and I've got nice. a trail near my neighborhood. So I'll go on the trail with the corgi, and so I, I do a little bit of mountain biking. I want to get more into mountain biking, but. Yeah. The past two years, I've tried. I've been increasing my distance and speed in the triathlon. I've got a couple of buddies in Houston that keep me pretty competitive. Yeah. So I'm doing my first half Ironman, seventy point three in uh, three weeks. So I'm oh, a little nervous man. about that. Good luck. Uh, thanks. And so that's been my main deal is triathlons yeah. lately. I was going to ask you. So are you working up eventually? You want to do the Ironman? I, it's a life goal. Yeah. I haven't exactly decided when. If there's one thing I've learned from training for this half iron, is <laughs> that in order in order to do this, it's a huge time commitment. Yeah. Like I have to, and I'm not super competitive. Let's be honest. I'm not winning anything. I'm not <laughs> that competitive, but even just to get your endurance up enough to where you're not laughed at for showing up at dark when the race is right. over, you, it's a lot of time involved and you, you sacrifice social events and, mm-hmm. and things. And it's not bad. It's, it's keeping me on the healthy track, but, um, yeah, I want to do an Ironman, but I don't know when I'll have the life balance. Right. I need to do that. And I don't think they're really healthy to do. I know there's some guys oh, that do imagine. it every year. It's it's That's too much exercise. If you're going to do Ironmans regularly, then you really need to be watching your antioxidant load and, and, and your oxidative stress markers. Because yeah. I've had uh, multiple <clears throat> endurance athletes who have prediabetes, and um, they don't actually have prediabetes. What someone's looking at is a marker called the A1C, which most diabetics are very familiar with. It's a marker of your average blood sugar. And... Um, it, that's what that's the way it's sold, and that's the way we we learned it in medicine. But the the way that it's important to understand the way that marker works because it can be falsely elevated and falsely lowered. So all that A one C marker means is how quickly blood sugar molecules attach to hemoglobin. That's where we get hemoglobin A one C. So naturally, the higher your blood sugar, the more that attaches to the hemoglobin. Mm-hmm. But there's another factor in there. The more oxidative stress you have, the faster blood sugar attaches to the hemoglobin molecule. So you can have perfectly normal sugar levels, but if your body's too oxidative stressed, if you're working out too hard, if you have too much inflammation, too much alcohol, too much cigarettes, then you speed up that process and now your A1C falsely elevates. It is elevated, but it's not because of the blood sugar. It's literally just because of like 
extreme amounts of exercise or stress even or, emotional stress <clears throat> mental stress your body can't really tell the difference between stress stress right. is stress right stress is stress right so many times i have to tell those people like you don't have a diabetic problem you have an oxidative stress problem and we can do testing to show them that um but we i it's taken multiple patients months to get their a1c down even on keto even on really wow. low carb diets and that proves to you that their a1c wasn't elevated because of sugar right right dang that's crazy um so with the with the athletes that are doing this, like do you know you've those people that do like the super marathons? Oh man! And like they do these insane these insane physical things. Like how like how long would you say? Have you heard? There's a guy that did like the Iron he, Cowboy. I don't even know what's that. The the guy that did fifty Ironmans. Yeah, something. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. There's him. There's some dude that did like I think seven days in a row, and he did uh, a super marathon like every single day. And like so, like how how long? Would it take like your body to recover from that? that <laughs> I don't know that you would ever recover that, from yeah, that. Yeah, just I some damage. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. I, I believe that the body is incredible at healing itself. Yeah. It can repair, but that's a that's a sickness in my mind. That yeah, you can get obsessed like... to eating, you can get obsessed to exercise. So too much is too much of anything. Yeah. So if you want to do that to prove yourself, by all means, wow, props <laughs> to you for being able to pull that off. But yeah, exercise is meant to be healthy. And But I, I frequently ask people, what do you do to de-stress? And people say, oh, I go exercise, I do punching bags, Orange Theory, CrossFit, whatever. And I say, okay, what do you do for de-stress? Right. Like, I just told you, like, no, that's a physical stressor. It may be a mental de-stressor, but it's a physical stressor. You have to have time in your day for de-stress of both mental and physical. Right. So too much <clears throat> physical stress is still stress to the body. It doesn't know any different. Yeah, like rest is super important. That's right. So, like, for, for people that, like, want to find the best way to balance out, you know, the eating, obviously the nutrition, huge. Mm -hmm. Working out, super important. And then rest, equally as important, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, like, what, what's a good way to rest, though? Because I feel like, like, watching TV, like, is that a good way to rest? I don't, right. I mean, it, like, I like it. <laughs> I, there's a good balance. And uh, Ben Greenfield is it talks a lot about rest and, and active recovery. Are you yeah, familiar yeah, I'm with familiar him? with Ben Greenfield. Yeah, so yeah. he's a talker, though. If yeah. you get on some of his podcasts, oh, yeah, you yeah. can, whoo. Ben, he's a wealth of knowledge, and oh, especially yeah. in the it's fitness super world. Super cool, yeah. So he's got a book called Beyond Training. That that's where I get some of my many of my um, activity recovery ideas oh, from. Cool. And so I, I think recovery has many different versions. And he makes a really good point of you know what that zone one workout of just walking around is just as important as your zone five high intensity interval training. You've got to have a balance of all of it. And so that's something I'm working on personally. Like when I go to workout, I feel like if I don't do that high intensity interval, then I didn't do a good enough job. But no, you need you need to listen to your body. If you're if you're pulling your collar like God, I don't want to go do that workout. It probably means your body really doesn't want to do that workout, and you need to do something slower, longer, slower, shorter, slower. Listen to your body. I agree that sitting on the couch, while that may be very um, relaxing, it's not really that recover that much recovery for the body. Right. You've got to keep moving. Um, too much sedentation is a problem. Yeah, I would say, I feel like moving is always like, you can't really move too much, mm -hmm. I feel like, not really. Because even like, I remember when I used to, like when I was a soccer player, it would be even certain, obviously if you like broke a leg or something, it'd be right. like, okay, don't put any pressure <laughs> don't on, on that. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, a lot of like smaller injuries and like even like little tweaks in your back and all this stuff, the, the trainers would always be like, don't, don't go sit down and watch TV all day or like, on, like move as much as you can without hurting yourself but mm -hmm. the more you can move and kind of like 
be in different positions and just kind of stay moving. It at least keeps your body a little bit looser, and it's like, I guess it's just a better active rest. Absolutely, right? 100% agree. Because if you're if you're just sedentary, then all your muscles atrophy. And atrophy just means thinning of the muscle, mm -hmm. and it just kind of disappears, withers away. So if you're at least moving, you're getting that little bit of stimulus to the muscle tissue, and so you won't lose as much muscle tissue. But, I mean, you can look at hospital patients. They, they've done this multiple times. It's kind of sickening. that The number is something like, um, it sounds high, but I'm pretty sure it's accurate, is that people lose 30% of their muscle mass per day in the hospital of per just day? of being in, if you're completely bed bound, right, right. not the person that's walking around the room right, and right, stuff, right. but if you're bed bound, you can lose 30% wow. of your muscle mass per day. And that's a scary fact, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. If you don't have stimulus, that muscle just withers. Yeah. You need some sort of stimulus. And if you ever, if you ever know anybody that goes through, has a birth or a C-section or any kind of appendix, any kind of surgery, the people that get moving the fastest are up and out. It seems oh, yeah. backwards. Like, wait a minute, because we've commonly said, no, you need to lay down, you need right, to rest. Right. No, the faster you move, the more. Well, not necessarily the faster. Fast. The faster but you get, get moving, yeah. <laughs> the more you move, the better your body recovers. Oh yeah. Yeah, because even, um, I mean, I had a lot of friends who tore ACLs or did something with their knee. That's common and I in mean, soccer. Yeah, oh, <laughs> ACLs. yeah. It's, oh, it's nasty, too. Thankfully, I'm so happy I never did mine. Really? So happy, Got yeah. both of yours intact, never both operated on? Both my ACLs on? are alive. I had a friend who, <laughs> in high school, he tore one ACL, was out for, you know, eight months, however long it was, came back, first game back, tore the other ACL. <laughs> So then after that, he was like, I'm, Like, soccer's not my sport. Yeah, he was like, I'm done. I'm done with this. And yeah, it was terrible. But the guys, like my, my teammates in college, they would get surgery. And then within like, it was like the next day or two, and they had them on those machines that like slowly, it like keeps your knee straight, but it like starts slowly moving it. Hmm. Like, it, it'll start, like, a very, very sure, small sure. range of motion. But then they, like, in this thing's, like, moving it, it's probably within the first, maybe within the first week. I don't know. I can't remember the exact timetable. But that was interesting, and that was something I started seeing more recently, I mean, in the past five years, than before. I feel like a while ago, it was almost the opposite. They would yep. keep it, like, stationary. They would give yep. you that Here's a brace. Lock. Don't yeah. move. They would lock that brace in, mm -hmm. and it would be, like, no movement at all. And that was, I don't know, that was crazy. Orthopedics um, have changed a lot. Yeah, it's cool. That's Yeah, that's what uh, kind of brings me to what I was going to ask you about. You guys do the stem cell and the PRP injections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what can you tell us about that? Because oh that's gosh, super interesting. That yeah, that stuff is awesome. <laughs> so I, PRP and stem cells have gotten really, really popular lately. Yeah. And, and I'm glad because, unfortunately, the conventional medical world is not really supportive of the yeah. PRP and stem cells. So really the movement for PRP and stem cells has been mostly yeah. led by PRP patients and people and social media and things. Why do you think that, like, why is there such a, it's I don't money. know if there's a pushback or it's like, money. is it, is it money? So there's no reimbursement for right. PRP and stem cells. So the way, the way the American medical model works right now is the insurance company has to cover something in order for the doctor to get paid. Mm -hmm. And in general, most patients are, as soon as something's not covered by insurance, they're like, well, that's clearly not good because why would my insurance company cover right. it? Well, one of the reasons they can't cover it is because PRP and stem cells are your own human tissue. You can't patent your own human tissue. Uh, so if it can't be patented, there's no big companies lobbying the insurance companies right. saying, hey, you need to pay for our product because it's X good. So there's, not, there's no motivation for the insurance company to cover it. Now, if they were wise and really looked at the success people <clears throat> were getting, a joint replacement can cost fifty to $60,000. Right. Stem cells can cost five, ten thousand dollars depending on who you see, who, how awesome they are, whatnot. But you're done. 
right. five or ten thousand. You don't really need a hospital. You don't need a hospital stay. You don't even really need a physical therapist, not a specialized one at least. Right. You should do a physical therapist if you're getting it. Um, but that's it. You're done. Yeah. Why is an insurance company saying, "Hey, we could save twenty five thousand yeah. dollars," or no, what did I say, fifty, sixty thousand? You could save forty thousand dollars and cover stem cells. And yes, they don't work for everyone, but it's a chance. And if they covered it, more people would do it, and it puts more faith in the medical community. But let's face it: I, if you're a guy and you, if you're a doc or a gal, there's plenty of female docs out there, um, and you only get paid to put in these joint replacements, then you're gonna naturally dismiss the other versions right. because we you don't do them so you don't really know how successful they are joint replacements work patients do them they do work there's a lot of complications with joint replacements and anyone who doesn't admit that is definitely right, off right. so number one it's just it's a huge surgery and yeah. you're sawing off your own bone and putting another type of device in there have you and, ever seen one of those surgeries oh yeah have you i'm assuming right they're, they're brutal isn't it nuts yeah because i i was trying to be pre-med long ago and then and you had to go and like watch surgery and like could, I saw, I think it was a hip replacement, and I could not believe <laughs> what I saw. There's real, real power tools involved. Yeah, it's like a WWE match in there. It's crazy. <laughs> it is intense. I, I couldn't believe it. Sorry, keep going. I was no, kidding. it's graphic, and it, you can watch videos and think, oh, that's just a one case. No, that's that's really yeah. what happens. Or orthopedics is very barbaric. There's some funny things they do when you really like evaluate, like, why did they do it that way? Okay, that's kind of funny, but no, it's not really funny because it's barbaric. <laughs> Luckily, we have good sedation now. Right. Because it would never happen. Yeah, I'm thinking, no sedation. wonder you wake up feeling like you got hit by a truck. Because you, you did. basically <laughs> did. Yeah. But ultimately, if you need that hip replaced, that's the only way yeah. to do it. So right. you got to do it. But the stem cells, so to get back to the original, the, the stem cells do offer people another option. And it's almost always harmless. Like, if the stem cells do fail, you can always go and do the joint replacement afterwards. One of the things that kind of upsets me about stem cells is people are selling it as, oh my God, this is the miracle cure. You're done. Do it once and you're done. And for most people, including most of the patients I've treated, it is one and done and you are drastically better afterwards. I can honestly say that every patient I've treated has done better, remarkably better, but I refuse to treat anyone until they've gotten their body healthier. Mm -hmm. So this is the problem with the stem cell clinics that are popping up all over the place. Yeah, show up, we'll harvest your stem cells and inject it back in you. People have forgotten that it's stem cells, it's your body. If you're eating hamburgers and cheeseburgers and french fries, your own stem cells, they suck. Right. So you can harvest as much as you want, but you're taking inflamed, damaged, decrepit stem cells and shoving them inside a damaged, decrepit joint. Do you really think you're going to get that much efficacy out of it? Now, I do believe that you will get some efficacy out of it, but I normally require my patients three, at least three months to say, you're going to eat healthier. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to check your inflammation levels. We're going to check your vitamin levels. We're going to check your hormones. Stem cells grow in response to hormones. If your hormones are low, then guess what? Your growth hormones are going to be low and you're not going to actually respond to this. Stem cells, so it, it makes sense that stem cells are young cells and they'll regenerate tissue, but you never use stem cells alone. You always use stem cells with PRP, so they're mm-hmm. always mixed and injected. The reason why you do that is because PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. Plasma has a lot of the growth hormones, blood vessel growth factors, um, mainly growth hormones and all their related peptides to stimulate new growth and healing. Mm-hmm. So that's why stem cells by themselves are kind of boring and can't really get to work unless you mix them with the growth hormones. But if you don't have growth hormones, you can collect as much blood as you want. It just won't work. 
So that's one of my big pet peeves is when people do stem cells too early or PRP too early. You've got to get the body healthier before you do it. And your success rates will be much higher. And it's expensive stuff. Yeah. So if you're going to drop five grand, wait, wait three yeah. months, six months, a year, however long it takes to get this one and Make done. Make sure that it's as good as it can because be. then so let's say it doesn't work well was it a failure like it's just not going to work or was your body not healthy enough i don't know you have to spend another five grand to find out right. so it is expensive but if people really look at how much a joint replacement costs it's pennies on the dollar right. plus you get to keep your own tissue there's more and more data i don't know if you've seen the um the documentary on netflix i think it's called bleeding edge i haven't seen that one yet but i want to <sighs> i want to see it it's depressing is it, it is that's depressing. why i haven't watched it yet because, like, I saw the trailer and I was like, that's going to be rough. So I'm <laughs> it's not, a total I'm not ready yet. <laughs> total downer. So, but what they point out is they point out that we've been implanting devices in people's bodies thinking that it's not really going to do anything mm-hmm. forever. And um, what we fail to realize is, is that our body doesn't want foreign objects in it. It doesn't want dead tissue. So, number one, it's trying to attack it. So, it's chronic inflammation. Two, it's really difficult to keep bacteria, fungus, mold off of foreign objects. We're really good. We're kind of good at keeping it out of us because we're live tissue. But you're, there's no immune system inside of a pacemaker, inside of a, a hip replacement. So and, and so the bacteria and fungus can kind of use that as their battleground, their bunker, uh-huh. and hide there. So the immune system can constantly attack it, but it's always got its bunker that, that it can hide from. It's not too different from teeth. People who battle from gingivitis and periodontal disease, it's hard to eradicate that stuff because the outside of a tooth is dead. A tooth is alive, but the outside of the tooth ha- is a bunker for bacteria and fungus. So it's difficult to eradicate them in their hiding place. So most of conventional medicine doesn't believe that bacteria and fungus leave the bowels, but they've proven it multiple times that just brushing your teeth gives you what we call a bacteremia, fungemia. You get bacteria and fungus in your bloodstream every time you brush your teeth. You don't get sick, obviously, but there's some microscopic amounts. Well, your blood goes everywhere, and some blood is going to go to your joint, and you have a hip replacement in that joint. So that one little bacteria that got in from brushing your teeth can now make a multiple colony. And so we're finding that some of these implants are getting... I don't want to say infection because that's a very clear situation when an infection happens, but it's almost like a colonization. And this idea is new and it was a tough pill for me to swallow because that's not what we were taught. And we were taught the complete opposite. You either have an infection or you don't. But now we're finding these low grade inflammations around these people with, with device implants, including breast implants. Breast implants are going to explode with problems. <clears throat> and it's already exploding. It's becoming common knowledge. I heard about now. that, yeah. It's going to be big news in the next year yeah. and maybe even this year. And even hearing, thinking about it now, it doesn't sound like it should be that surprising to me. Correct. Like, 20, that, hindsight. Yeah, like thinking about it, it's like that seems like it probably isn't the best to just mm-hmm. like shove stuff into your body. That's especially, dead material. Yeah. It? live material likes to hold on to it especially if you like don't need it like i get it you need like a pacemaker like it's pretty vital but like a breast implant it's kind of like yeah you're putting yourself on unnecessary risk yeah there's a price to vanity so yeah and and i can certainly understand i'm not faulting anyone especially in the medical community because it's oh it's perfectly safe there's nothing wrong there's no no harm but the the data has been hidden by the companies i believe and i think the real data is finally coming out enough women have implants and enough women are speaking about to come up that's good then because i guess if that's the case it needs yeah it needs to be known for sure Mm -hmm. because you can't let have people kind of like blindly going into it thinking it's totally fine. Yep. So these implants, these hips, these pacemakers, they're not necessarily getting infected. They're just getting this chronic inflammation or this chronic colonization. And um, one of the first papers I read that really helped me understand this is they were calling these bacteria small colony variants. 
and the idea that bacteria and Lyme disease, you mentioned Lyme mm -hmm. disease before we got on camera, I think, the, the idea that they have multiple forms is kind of foreign to conventional medicine. But once again, just like I was saying about them using N-acetylcysteine in the ER, Conventional medicine already knows these things. They're just not opening their eyes to see it. So it's very well known that syphilis, syphilis, when you get it, you get a lesion on your genitals, and then two, three years later, you get a rash on your hands, <coughs> completely gone in between those two to three years. And then 10 to 20 years later, you develop dementia and crazy. Well, where was the syphilis all this time if you couldn't see it anywhere? So it has different phases. And mm -hmm. Syphilis is a spirochete, just like Lyme is a spirochete. So bacteria and fungus have learned to have different phases, different ways to hide, different right. ways to be active. And that's how they invade the system differently. So to get back to the original point of how is this hip not infected but mm -hmm. have bacteria is these small colony variants. So this is kind of early in research, but it's now proven, this is proven research, that I think they use Staph aureus, but don't quote me on that. One of the bacteria, right. anyway. Usually when you think of Staph aureus, you think of an infection, an abscess right. that needs to be drained. That's like kind of like MRSA type yeah, of stuff, Yeah, MRSA right? is yeah. a Staph aureus yeah. that's resistant to methicillin right. and antibiotic. So this Staph aureus, they, or whatever bacteria, they proved had a small colony variant. Typically when you have bacteria, you grow it on a plate and there's multiple colonies, mm. there's a bunch of them per colony. They're, they're huge, you can see them with your eye as they grow. These small colony variants are small colonies of the bacteria, and they're so small that they can actually hide inside of your cell. Oh, wow. So that's one of the problems with spirochetes. They can hide inside right, of a cell like in cystic form. Drooling, yes, kind of, right? yeah. And, um, and there's other bacteria like chlamydia. Um, that one survives inside of the cell. It's an intracellular bacteria. So if a regular bacteria, a regular one, non-intracellular, mm. has a variant that can hide inside of a cell, the immune system doesn't police the inside of the cell. It polices the outside of the cells. It's kind of like a policeman roaming your neighborhood. He's not going in each house looking for the burglars right. unless he's called there. Right. So it's hard for a cell to realize there's bacteria inside it and call out for help because it's itself, and the immune system doesn't want to attack self. So this is how this whole like chronic inflammation of a hip is going to be a problem. These small colony variants. This you've got a source that's constantly seeding the system with mm -hmm. these bacteria. That's interesting. Because that's kind of I mean that's similar to the way several different like viruses basically work, right? Where they go dormant, but like I guess we never really thought about it in the form of bacteria. And that's a, it's like that's super a, similar though. That's another big topic that conventional medicine ignores. So to, to make another parallel, that's like conventional medicine doesn't believe in chronic mono or chronic EBV, mm -hmm. but it's there because they believe in shingles. So right. chicken pox you get as a child, and that virus lays there until it becomes active again, and now you have shingles. Mm -hmm. So that is a young virus that you got, or a virus that you got at a young age that reactivated in adulthood. Why can't EBV do the same thing? Right. So you got EBV. Most people get EBV as a child. 90, 95% of people get EBV as a child, and it's a pink eye, it's a runny nose, and you never know any different. <clears throat> Everyone knows mono is the kissing disease that mm -hmm. you get in your teenage years, and you get six months of fatigue. That's only if you don't get it as a child. The older you get EBV, the more severe the symptoms, just like oh, chicken okay. pox. The older you get it. That's why they'd have chicken pox parties. Right, right. <laughs> I think you're you're old enough to, to, have, to know some of that. Did you get chicken pox yeah. vaccinated or... 
Did you get the chicken pox? I think I got the chicken pox. Okay. I think I got the chicken pox. I can't remember, I'm, but I'm pretty sure I did. So we're we're some of the last ones to get chicken pox that will ultimately be exposed to, to shingles or have the possibility of shingles. But chronic EBV is a perfect example of what you just said. You can have, you if you get EBV, you have EBV for the rest of your life. It is mm-hmm. a DNA virus. It's one of the few viruses that incorporates into the DNA. Wow. You can't kill it because it's your own right, DNA. Right. It's hiding inside of your DNA. So it makes perfect sense that if your immune system gets dysfunctional, out comes EBV to play, mm-hmm. just like shingles, but there's no obvious rash. So EBV is this vague, like, oh, do I have EBV? I don't know. Someone believes it. Someone doesn't. But most of the time, people with chronic EBV have fatigue, and fatigue is usually multifactorial. So it's it's not easy to just say, oh, you have EBV. That's why you're fatigued or vice versa. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I guess I'll get pulling back into, so this is basically why it would definitely be a good idea to look into the PRP and stem cell before considering a full-on replacement, Joint right? Replacement. Yeah. So with, um, with like the PRP, right? So you can get the mixture mm-hmm. and then just PRP, that's cheaper than the stem cell right. option, right? Right. And it's maybe not quite as effective. Well, it's, it depends. So it, if it, it's usually soft tissue, hard tissue okay. is the easy way to think about it. So you've had it for patellar yeah, tendonitis. Yeah, yep. And, and so I, that's a tendon, so that's a soft tissue. Okay. So PRP, golden child, is soft yeah, tissue. You I don't mean, really use stem cells. Yeah, yeah. That's what they said I could have maybe. I don't know, but but they didn't recommend it. They said PRP, I mean, it's cheaper and it should do it. And it totally, I mean, I got two sessions of it and I did some. Did it hurt? It, it didn't hurt as much as I thought it would. <laughs> the second time it hurt more. Um, the yeah. first time, I mean, it's weird because when feeling. I go in, when I, when I went in to do it, so they take your blood out, they centrifuge it, all that stuff, and then they the the place I did. I don't know if you guys do it, but like they used ozone with it as well. Okay, that's Have you heard about? I've heard mm-hmm. apparently ozone's like a big disinfect or like natural disinfector. Or uh, so is it yes. kind of like unsure a little bit? I it's controversial. Yeah, in my I would mind. say controversial. I don't think it's harmful. Right, but, well, right. Well, breathing it is harmful, but um, as far as using it, I don't think it's harmful. Right. Some people swear by it, but I'm not right. sold on the data yet. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen much of the data, but that's just what they used. But mm-hmm. it made it really weird because they would, like, inject it, and then they also had, like, the ozone going in there. Mm-hmm. So there was, like, a, a bubble yeah. in my knee. And so, like, the first time they do it, they, like, because they numb you. So, like, I can't, right. you can't feel anything at first. Right. And they're, like, moving the knee around, and you can just feel it and hear Like, you can hear it, like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and it bubbles. was like, oh, my gosh, that's disgusting. <laughs> And then obviously that's see that's another thing kind of example about staying moving because if you let that thing stiffen up mm-hmm. it's rough, but but moving it's hard because it is I mean it gets it sore hurts. it puffs yeah. up pretty bad. It's one of the few things where you get where I always tell them, you will get worse before you yeah, get better. Yeah, oh for sure. The first day it's like this isn't that bad. Yeah, and then like day two and three you're like oh <laughs> yeah that like, hurts. It's, I mean it's it's pretty puffy. Yeah, and so but then I mean after maybe I feel like maybe a week it was like feeling good mm-hmm. and then I did I think four weeks of PT mm-hmm. um, and it, that was good and then I went in for one more session did it so a couple more weeks of PT and it was like and yeah mine was chronic patellar tendonitis or I guess how long was it a problem three four years oh my gosh wow. yeah like I mean it was my own fault because I was I was yeah dumb. but still the fact that it worked and it <laughs> yeah worked so yeah quickly. that's been amazing like because literally I got it when I first started playing my freshman year of collegiate soccer like I think it was just my body. I mean, when you go into a college sport, it's it's just nuts. It's, it's just hard. An, it's just every day you have two games a week and you're traveling so much and you're training. It's just it's a lot. And then so like the and it started 
maybe half like through preseason because we were doing like two a days for a few weeks and you're just mm-hmm. like you're beating your body up yeah and so i could feel it starts getting sore but like i don't know like most athletes you're kind of like i'm just gonna play through it you know like I'll, it'll be okay it's nothing terrible and the trainers were like yeah i mean you can play through it it might mm-hmm. get worse it won't mm-hmm. get better <laughs> right and i was like i'll just play so mm-hmm. i did that for that whole season and then i was like okay now that it's off season i'll take time off i took a few weeks off but then i just would keep playing like I would start playing in because I was like I just want to play like mm-hmm. I just wanted to play right. I was dumb but I kept doing it <laughs> Young yeah yeah so like, I wish I'd go back and change it but I was you know that's I mean it's pretty common yeah and so I would just keep doing it I would start doing all like the taping stuff like mm-hmm. I would kinesio tape uh, yeah yeah I tried the kinesio tape and like my trainer was like listen kinesio tape it, it's a mental it's a, it's a yeah it's a mental band-aid <laughs> like it's nothing and I was like well, I'll try it anyways I don't think it didn't do anything I mean maybe in some my people mind. swear by it but some people do for me no, I couldn't if it really works, tell great. I just, but yeah if it works for you that's awesome hey placebo effect is the best medicine out there <laughs> so that's awesome but and then I tried like tons of different stuff I did I tried to do the strengthening stuff but I just I wasn't resting so you're not going to get anywhere how with was it. your nutrition during that my time? nutrition during that time it wasn't great like mm-hmm. I'm sure it was okay but it definitely wasn't great mm-hmm. and so that was another thing after college and then when I was looking at getting this because I it was I graduated college and then I went up and I signed playing with a team in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and that's when I was like okay I really like I gotta fix this mm-hmm. I can't keep playing right like this. it's gonna tear it yeah that was that was my concern I didn't want to rupture it because then you're like done then that's real surgery yeah yeah, yeah. and it, 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 <laughs> it might affect real life yeah, not just soccer exactly. life so I was like I gotta get it taken care of and so around that same time I started eating I actually went for a couple of years, I was like vegetarian, and I I was like I wasn't. What f- kind of vegetarian? Like a mac and cheese vegetarian? No, no, okay. no, no. <laughs> I like I I went like a healthy version. So I mean I ate tons like vegetables. Obviously were huge. So like mm-hmm. I had tons of like spinach, kale, broccoli, really every color. Like you said, like you zucchini, squash, different color bell peppers. I would always like mix all that up and make some kind of dish with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have like a little bit of soy products, like a little bit of tofu maybe yeah. or whatever here and there. A lot of beans, like tons of mm. like black beans, garbanzo beans, pinto beans, tons of that. Tons of nuts. Yeah. Um, what else? I mean, I would have like like a lot of like avocados. Mm-hmm. Um, really stuff like quinoa. I really liked quinoa. Yeah. That was like kind of like hearty source. stuff up. Yeah. Especially because playing soccer, you're burning so much. Oh, yeah. I was like, so like it was good, and I felt great. Like when I made that transition into like being really conscious about my diet, I felt fantastic. Did it help your knee, or was that yeah, after the PRP? It was kind of like all like together. Mm-hmm. So like I did that, and I did feel like I was. I mean, you could definitely tell even just beyond the knee, but I could just tell like inflammation throughout the body was lower. Mm-hmm. So I think I don't think there was necessarily that much inflammation in the tendon. I think, but I think there was damage there. Like, I think there might have been maybe some micro tears because I ended up going and getting a um, ultrasound, I think. They do okay. an ultrasound reading on, on the tendon. Okay. And they said they could see, like, some micro tears. Like, maybe I had done a slight tear when I first had done it mm-hmm. or something. And so I don't think, at that point, I don't think inflammation was bad. Um, it was just that there was there was damage. So the pain would come if I would, like, lock the leg out or, like, really extend it mm-hmm. or something. It would be, like, sharp pain. Like, I felt it immediately. Mm-hmm. And so that's when they said... The, the doctor I talked to, I guess, thought maybe that the tendon, like, it was almost like your body had given up on healing it, like, mm-hmm. just because I had been chronic fighting it. Damage, exactly, yeah. exactly, because the chronic damage had been fighting it for so long. It was just like, forget about it. So that's why they got the PRP in there, and they said basically what they thought is it kind of almost re-signals to the body that, like, you need to, as well as just pumping in tons of, like, nutrients and, like, mm-hmm. things that will heal it, also just tells mm-hmm. the body, like, 
heal that area. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, kind of like with this whole nutritional change and with getting that, I mean, and now it's like great. Like I'm able to play and do everything I want and I really don't feel any pain. So it's been huge, which has been awesome. And so I've, I was super happy. I kind of found out about it because um, I didn't even know about it before then. Yeah. One of my opinions, and I'll use my own story to, to tell you one of my opinions, is that most, a lot of people's chronic joint damage actually doesn't have anything to do with the initial injury. So I'm going to prove this using myself because I'm myself of one. So of course I know it's, it's right. true, um, whether you believe it or not. So when I was in college, I was not professional tennis at all, but I was playing tennis and showing off in front of a girl and injured <laughs> my right shoulder. And for the next eight years, my shoulder hurt pretty much every day. It got to certain points where it would flare and it would go down and it would, it would go up and down, mm. but pretty much hurt every day. In fact, I never carried my wallet my right side because just reaching behind me would shoot would send shooting pain, so right. I just stopped using it. I could still brush my teeth and do everything. I'm right-handed. I could still do everything right-handed, just couldn't reach behind my back, and I learned that that was part of it. So I started training for triathlons. Yeah, it hurt, but I was able to at least kind of push through it. It wasn't too big of a mm. deal. But it finally completely went away out of the blue when I finally decided to remove gluten and dairy from my diet. Mm -hmm. And that hurt because if I had known... Right, eight that, years? Yes, <laughs> eight years ago, all I had to do was remove gluten and dairy out of my diet right. and it would go away. So the lesson I've learned, and, and as I told you before, it didn't fully go away, but it dramatically right, dropped. And I was right. considering PRP, but over time of healing my body, it's completely gone away without any PRP. And um, so what I took away from that was that most people's joint pains starts with an initial injury. Mm -hmm. But if you are already inflamed like I was, your body's going to focus on whatever it thinks the problem is. So you damage the, the, the mine was a supraspinatus tendon. You damage the supraspinatus tendon. Now the body thinks that's the problem. Mm -hmm. So it's just going to chronically try to kill it in right. order to fix the problem. But there is no problem there. So it just right. feeds the fire going forward. Until you can get to the root cause of the inflammation, your body can't regenerate and fix that tendon. There's no tendon that should be chronically damaged the body especially soft tissue it should be able to get in there heal repair be done with it so in in, in my opinion to boil it down to two simple causes a, a chronic tendon injury a soft tissue injury boils down to two main reasons one inappropriate use so mm -hmm. overuse Over inappropriate use imbalanced joint whatever that makes sense if you can't if you constantly use it wrong it's going to damage mm -hmm. but number two is actually an, an initial injury that just never really got better. Mm -hmm. um, so the, it, the, the chronic use, that's easy to fix. You take a break, you, use, yeah. you go see PT, and then the other one is, of course, if, there was a, if there's a, a constant trigger, you've got to remove that from right. your diet. Usually it's in the diet. It's an inflammatory food, a gut problem. Yeah. I think I talked a lot about gut health in my last podcast, mm -hmm. but I'm always talking about gut health. Yeah, it's everything, right? That's it like, is. what do they say? It's like your second brain? Isn't that what that, it's, even, it's even simpler than that. I mean, if you think of, I don't see any plants in here, but if you see a plant's leaves are withering, are you going to be like, wow, what's wrong with those leaves? Right. No, yeah, like, it needs water. The, yeah. So it's uh, the, the, the source, the, like the, the roots. The roots, yeah. So the you soil. Can, you can have the best nutrition in the world, but if you can't absorb your nutrition, you're dead. And if right. you don't believe me, look up uh, short gut syndrome. So babies that are born with intestines that are too short or people that have too much surgery on their intestines and run out of intestines, they die. You mm. can't If you cannot absorb your nutrients, you die. Right. It doesn't matter how much you, you eat. You've got to be able to absorb. So a few of our sayings are, uh, you aren't what you eat, you are what you absorb. Mm. And then the other one we use is, you aren't what you... Uh, uh, oh, gosh. 
Um, it's not what you eat, it's what your food eats. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> so kale is really healthy, but if it's grown on toxic soil, is it really that healthy? Right, right. Because kale is really good at detoxifying. Maybe it so detoxifies probably, the soil. <laughs> yeah, it took it all out. Yeah, for sure. Now, that's more theory-based. Right, right. Certainly eating beef that's been fed grain and, and corn and toxic stuff, of course it's more toxic. Than right, that. right. Yeah, that's one thing. So, like, I'm not, like, I've kind of opened up my diet to, I'm a little bit more just kind of, like, I'll eat a little bit of meat here, here and there. I'll have some fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have dairy either. Oh, no. Almost Dairy's never. inflammatory for almost everyone. Yeah. I, and I was bummed, man, because I, like, I loved, like, yogurt. Oh, yeah. I love yogurt. It's but great. now I found some pretty good, like, almond-based yeah, yogurts options. and cashew-based yogurts. Yeah. That are, like, pretty, I mean, like, coconut, coconut-based yeah. yogurts. We're so, spoiled in Austin, though. Yeah. People can't get that outside. I know. <laughs> I know. That's how, like, where I went to college was, like, in the middle of West Texas. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, like, Nothing. I was, like, in the middle of the beef capital of, like, the <laughs> South. So yeah. it was, like, there were... You're not, you weren't going to find anything like now, that. Now, there's an online thing. I think it's called Thrive Market, something like that, mm-hmm. where you can sign up, and you got to pay this, like, monthly membership thing. But they'll, they'll ship you all these crazy – there's all kinds of paleo stuff on it. Oh, so cool. that's an, that's a great option for people that live outside right. of, of town and can't get this at that's Whole Foods. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say Whole Foods keep you spoiled, man. They got mm-hmm. everything. Yep. Um, so I, I know you're talking about, like, the high-fat diet thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I was kind of curious. A big thing I've heard a lot about lately now has been, like, fasting. Mm-hmm. Right, like the use of fasting for basically helping to reverse, ton- like we were talking about some dementia and like mm-hmm. Alzheimer's and stuff. And I've heard that like certain ways of like fasting can kind of really help reverse some of those issues and like tons of other health issues. So like I was curious, do you have any like do you know anything about fasting? Do you? Yeah, you I know I know a lot about fasting, but at the same time, I don't want to act like I know all the research. Luckily, right. um, there's so many authors out there writing yeah, books and tons. things. So I read some of the same books that anyone else would read. And so I trust these people. They're knowledgeable. They're research nerds. So I trust that they've yeah. done the research. Oh, that's a so. good thing now. There's so much like... <laughs> They'll have, like, th- 40 pages at the end of all yep. the sources. And you're like, and you're all like right. okay, I'm glad you read those. I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to, but yeah, I'm glad exactly. you did. So fasting is powerful, and really it's it's so obvious that it is powerful because if you really think about it, it hasn't been that long when we've had the availability of having food 24 hours right. a day. It really isn't that long when you really look at the, the, the length of humanity, no matter what you believe, the, the idea of having a fridge and food at all times is, is pretty rare. So I think if you really go back to our Paleolithic era of when we were cavemen, the last time our DNA had a chance to evolve, whatever you want to call it, right. we, we did go through periods of <coughs> fasting. And if you it, it kind of makes sense and then it kind of doesn't. So the way I make sense of it is if you're fasting, it means you have not had food, so you need to go find food. Right. And it's almost like, in my mind, the way I've convinced myself, is the body kicks into a survival mode. Mm-hmm. So why would being hungry cause you to have more stem cells and regenerate and get stronger and all that stuff? It makes sense because it's almost like your body is going into a survival mode of like, oh, crap, we have to eat or we will die. So spend all your energy building, repairing, making stuff because we got to chase down that gazelle or whatever it is to to eat it. So in a sense, if you think like, well, fasting, how can that fix anything? You're just not eating anything. That shouldn't repair anything. Mm -hmm. But if we get back to genetics, which we don't know enough about, there are ancient genetics that have been that we've been called um, starvation genes or hunger genes or fasting genes that you don't even turn on if you're eating all day long. And the way you turn those on is insulin has to drop mm. enough in order for those genes to kick in. So one way to do it is the most common and easiest way to do it. Once again, you can't get benefit if you can't actually do something. So usually what we recommend someone that's interested in intermittent fasting, and anyone and everyone should be doing this, 
Dr. Dale Bredesen in his book, Reversing Alzheimer's, makes an amazing case yeah, for intermittent yeah. fasting. And the, the typical window is a 16-hour fast with eight hours of eating. So the way that looks for most people is from 12 to 8, they eat. And as soon as 8 o'clock hits, they are not allowed to eat anything else. And what that does is it gives you 16 hours of your body to rest from digestion because digesting food is a really difficult process. And if you don't believe me, I want you to take a cheeseburger and try to grind it up in little molecules in order for your body to absorb them. Doing that with your hands, rocks, tools, blender, whatever you want to, it's a lot of effort. And you know what? Your body does it every time you eat. Right. That's hard work. So 16 hours of fasting gives your digestive tract and uh, time to rest in order to regenerate its enzymes and stomach acid and fluids and all that stuff. Um, it gives your microbiome a time to rest. And also it drops your insulin levels. And if there's any one thing people can do to live longer, it's drop your insulin levels. Mm -hmm. I don't care how much you want to avoid sugar. It is everywhere. Yeah. If you are not consciously aware of avoiding sugar, you're already eating too much. Mm -hmm. If you're not consciously avoiding, you're eating too much. I can't say that enough. It's in everything. I consciously avoid it and I eat more than I want to because it is in everything. Yeah. So dropping your insulin levels is an easy way to do it with fasting. I mean, I've seen diabetics reverse diabetes within a few weeks to a month just by doing intermittent fasting. Now, usually when someone's doing IF intermittent fasting, they're usually making dietary changes right, and right, stuff of too. It's not like that's the only thing they're mm -hmm. doing, but... And it's a little hard to get started. So normally what I tell people is do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or three days a week, intermittent fasting, 16 hours. But after you're anyone's body, here's a good point, anyone's body should be able to tolerate a 16-hour fast. If you cannot tolerate a 16-hour fast, then you have some biochemical dysfunction, meaning you're eating too much sugar or your body can't operate off of fat. Mm -hmm. If you can't operate off of fat, then you're in trouble. Yeah, that is your main energy source. If you can't operate off of fat, you can pretty much know that you have mitochondrial dysfunction. And if you've never looked up that term, you need to look it up because you have a problem and it's in your mitochondria. So anyone should be able to intermittent fast. Now, some of the longer fastings, um, I, I'm sure you've heard of people doing 24-hour fast, 36, up to like seven yeah. Day so fast. Goes seven day, that's, that's wild. Yeah, I wouldn't really do much more than seven days. And I yeah. think beyond three and five really starts to stretch yeah. my opinion of, of is it beneficial? Because at some point you cannot stay in an anabolic state. You yeah. will break into a catabolic state. But at the same time, I do think there are benefits to it, especially if you're trying to do like a yeast starve out or something. Like if you're if you're doing it once a year or every right, six months or right. something, okay, maybe. But it should not be an every week thing. No. Well, obviously not every week. <laughs> every that week, would just be never dead. Be. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But those prolonged fasts, I, I think, can have beneficial things to it. So um, I, I've heard of 30-day fast being a miraculous healing for some people. Sure. But if you fast, and what we generally tell our patients is, if you fast and feel better, you mainly have an overgrowth in your bowels. There's no reason you should ever not eat food and feel better. That mm -hmm. really doesn't really make that much sense. So if you feel dramatically better when you don't eat, and then as soon as you eat, you feel worse, you have an overgrowth in your intestines that you are feeding every time you eat. And when you fast, they don't eat, so they don't make toxins, so you don't feel bad. So yes, fasting has benefits, and you should feel better and all kinds of stuff. That's cool. But you should not be like, oh my God, I don't want to eat because I feel good. You've got a problem. And maybe maybe an emotional problem, like a food right. problem or in, or something like that. But now, I don't know if you've heard of the Prolon, the fasting mimicking diet. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
I've heard a little bit about that. So this goes back to our, our point earlier of um, the Dean Ornish diet is amazing, but if you can't do it, it has no benefit whatsoever, right. Right? right? So the fasting mimicking diet is really cool. And I must admit, I was slow to uptake it, and, and I'll tell you why. But the idea behind a fasting mimicking diet, FMD, just to break down the words, you are fasting, not really, you're mimicking a fast, mm -hmm. and so it's a diet. So this Prolon company has made this this popular, and they actually did do the research. So the, the FMD diet, the research you see, it is the Prolon kit. And so this Prolon kit is basically a five-day um, diet, and it's it's all processed foods. That was my beef with it, is yeah. that it, every day is a box. You take out the box, and you eat and drink whatever's in the box, and then you're done. It's something like 1,200 calories, then 1,100, then 800, 600 calories. Right, so it's like caloric restriction. It is. Yeah. So, and I was against it at first because I was like, I never want to tell someone that here, eat this processed food instead of real food and that's better for you. That right. doesn't make any sense. But what I finally convinced myself after seeing the research and realizing the autophagy and the other benefits mm -hmm. in it was that the only reason I'll agree that these processed foods are better than eating is because we're trying to get a goal. And if you want to do your own fasting mimicking diet by counting all your calories, all your nutrition, yeah. making your own food, doing it, then you don't need the Prolon kit. You can do it on your own. Mm -hmm. But if you want it simple, and we're American, we want it simple yes, and straightforward, then buy the Prolon kit, do your five days, and call it done. The benefits of the Prolon kit is that you get the benefits, the idea, the research, is that you get the benefits of a five-day fast without fasting. Right. So that's, that's always nice, too, because you're like, you're cheating the system. Exactly. It's a hack. <laughs> exactly. So they're they're making the prolonged fasting uh, even more popular, but mainly what they're pushing is their 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 kit. You buy their kit, ah. but I, I do think there are benefits to prolonged fasting. Just yeah. shouldn't be used too often. Right. Yeah. And use the fast to tell your body something. Yeah. If you feel amazing, think of the gut overgrowth. Yeah. So that's interesting too. I think that's important for sure for people to know is like you don't want them to be like, wow, I feel so good because mm -hmm. then that would be a little bit of an issue. And it I can know, lead to like, food problems, right. like a bad relationship with food. Right, yeah, you don't want like hate food. Mm -hmm. Food's still great. I love yeah. food, for sure. I love it. Can't live without it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because I, I got into fasting, and I've been doing, I'll do like a 24-hour fast every now and again. Um, and that was the first way I did it. And then I How'd kinda, you feel? I felt like, I mean, I was pretty hungry. But <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Um, yeah. I was like coaching some soccer actually the first day I did it I was like okay like it was night it was Saturday night at like 7 I was like I'm done eating until tomorrow at 7 mm -hmm. so the next day I woke up and I had like tons of coaching and I had like black coffee because I read mm -hmm. you can have black coffee yeah I can't I do that like, coffee yeah yeah it's, it's tough without <laughs> it so like, I had my black coffee and that was it and I was out coaching all day so until like 2 or 3 I felt mostly fine because uh, I think I was like pretty engaged I was busy my mind was yep. off it I wasn't around food and then I got home at like three, and one, it was obviously getting close to the like last four hours or so. So I was like, oh my God, mm -hmm. I'm hungry. But then also, I'm like starting, like sitting around, I like at the kitchens right there. Yep. And so I'm like, God, I gotta eat. <laughs> and so, but it was good. Like, and I liked it. So that was like, that was actually the first fast I ever did of any kind. So then after that, I was like, I'm probably not gonna do a 24 hour like tons. I'll do it here mm -hmm. and there. Yeah. Um, but I did start doing more of like an intermittent fasting. I'm not like super strict on the 16 8. Um, I used like there's like a pretty cool app that you can like track your fasting you save mm -hmm. it's just like a nice way to keep track of your time sure um, and so I'll do kind of what I've started doing now will be like I want to do like minimum every day 12 hours 
And then hopefully, ideally, I'm usually closer to 14, 15, 16 hours, right mm-hmm. in that range. And then, like, sometimes if for whatever reason I eat, it's like, okay, I'm, whatever. But I always try and get at least 12. Yeah. Um, and, I, yeah, I've liked it. And I think the biggest thing for me has just been, like, not being – I feel like I used to be reliant on, like, yes. always eating. Like, mm-hmm. if I didn't eat for, like, three hours, I was, like, oh, I'm getting so, like, mm-hmm. hungry and angry. Like, I have to eat. My blood sugar's low. That's, like, yeah. a really common one. And so, and it was like, that's always how I was. So then I started doing this and now it's like, I don't eat for hours on end and it's like, it's okay. It's, it's not like, I'm not going to die. I'm good. And One of the ways I help people transition into, if they can't do the 16 hours, I want to help them transition into getting the 16 hours. I'll let people cheat and do fat only. So uh, for yeah. instance, doing like coconut oil or MCT. Right. With the, the with coffee, coffee, right? Mm-hmm. Cause that, cause I was going to say, I did look that into that and it's like, Technically, you're breaking the fast, right? But, but you, not you still, yeah, yeah. But you still keep most of the like you're still what is it, auto autophagy, autophagy, right? Yeah. You're still like maintaining that because your it, cells don't really know whether right. you ate the fat, right? Or right, right. Because the there's fat. still not any spike in your blood sugar or anything yeah. like that. So it kind of like is a neat way to cheat yeah. the system a little so bit. So my my favorite thing to put in coffee is the the canned coconut milk, the mm-hmm. full fat coconut milk. Oh, okay. And so I'll put like a third of the whole can in my yeah. coffee and I'll call that fasting, but it, yeah, it's Yeah, I do cheating. that sometimes too. <laughs> but I, I yeah, it's like not technically fasting, but when I looked it up I was like, "Hey, you're still getting most of the benefits." Yeah. So And I'll it settles your it. stomach. You don't yeah. you're not especially as athletes and if you're really working yeah, out. Yeah, that's the other thing. In the morning you're hungry. Mm-hmm. So it's if if you're going to work, it's not cool to be talking to a patient. Rah, rah, right. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that was that was another thing that I thought was like super interesting because growing up and like even as an athlete, it was always like, oh, you're you're an athlete, so you've got to fuel your body, all this, which mm-hmm. is true, definitely mm-hmm. true. But I like there's tons of these studies now where they talk about you're talking about the human growth hormone, the HGH, mm-hmm. and they say like when you're in fasting, your human growth hormones are at like thousand percent or like some insane amount. So, like, there's all these guys now that are, like, ripped up, and they're talking mm-hmm. about, like, using fasting in their workouts to kind of, like, even get an extra boost as opposed to, like, constantly crushing the mm-hmm. protein shakes the and, yeah, all that stuff. But the important caveat to that is if you're fasting, you have to make sure you make up for those calories. Right, right, right. So your body needs X amount of calories. Yeah, when you eat, you've got to, like, you've got to eat. And you got to make sure that if you're eating only lunch and dinner that you, you did skip breakfast, so you need to make up for those calories. So you should serve yourself a little more because one of the mistakes mm-hmm. I see people doing is they ate the same lunch and dinner that they would normally eat, but now they're hungry and they're snacking in between. Right. You're losing some of the benefit benefits if you're just eating sugar and crap. Mm-hmm. So make sure you're eating enough food to fuel your body in those eight hours and making sure they're good foods. Yeah, yeah, that's that was kind of what I've been trying to do. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's super cool. I did a, I, the last time I did a fast was, tw- I haven't done really more than 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this one was a 27 hour, but I'll never forget it because it was a 24 hour fast and I was already in ketosis before that and then I kicked into 24 hours, which is cheating. Doing is keto and then doing a fast is so easy. Yeah, because so you're already like so, kind of like, Body's already in ketogenic, so it's not hard. So I did. I was intending to do 24, but I felt really good at 24, so I kept going. And I had a run plan that day, and I was just going to do like three or four miles. Mm -hmm. 
seven miles later, I felt amazing. I was like, this is a problem. Like, yeah. I am high right yeah. now. I am euphoric. And I was like, I could go for longer, but I feel like I should stop because I'm pretty sure I'm going to tear up my body. Right. And uh, I was right. I was considerably sore the next day. Oh, yeah. But there's some sort of magic to fasting that we don't fully understand. But yeah. your body must be ready for it. Right, right. You must have functional mitochondria. You must be able to operate on fat. The easiest way to determine that is a 16-hour fast. Mm. Listen to your body. Yeah, because it's kind of like a small scale to like get a feel for it mm-hmm. and understand if your body's totally good. If to... you feel bad on fasting, you are not ready for right, it. Right, right. And the other thing is you can kill off. So fungus, everybody knows nowadays that fungus love carbs and, and sugar. So mm-hmm. if you do a fast, you're likely to kill off a lot of the fungus. And you might feel worse anytime you're killing off fungus. But too many people rely on cutting out carbs and sugar and fasting in order to kill fungus. Mm-hmm. You will never kill all of your fungal bacterial overgrowth by doing fasting they're smarter than that so they can go in hibernation just like you can go in Mm -hmm. hibernation so anyone that's got candida overgrowth or yeast overgrowth or any of those things they really need to come up with a gut healing protocol to take them to that last step yes the nutrition the the fasting helps get you close but you've got to get that last port out you've got to get the biofilms out in order to really finally kill all that stuff off right kind of like final push out Mm -hmm. all right that makes sense so if you're stuck on a diet i frequently tell people this like if your diet is so narrow that every time you you expand that and go out of those boundaries you feel worse you are not healed the human body should be able to take all kinds of foods and uh, and chew them up and absorb them within reason not all the refined crap that's out there i mean right, real right. food you should be able to eat real food and feel perfectly fine so if you can't get out of that boundary you have a problem in general our goal for most pa- for all of our patients is to get them healed and well and yes we use restrictive diets and elimination diet paleo aip mm-hmm. all that stuff but our goal is eventually that you can go to europe and have the bagel you can go out with your friends and have that drink and you should be fine if you do that every day, right. then yeah, you will go back to where you were because clearly you're genetically susceptible. But a, your microbiome is always resistant to change. So if you have a terrible microbiome, guess what? It's resistant to change. But once you restore your healthy microbiome, it should be resistant to changing for the worst. So as long as the majority of your time you're on the clean and narrow, then when you step out of bounds every now and then, it's not a big deal. Right. I cheat all the time, but I listen yeah. to my body. I pay for it. I know that when I cheat, this is what happens, and I'm willing to pay that price. And if I do it too much, I know it's a lot of work to get back. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's another thing that's super, I guess, important and beneficial about getting on, like, cleaner diets and utilizing fasting and all these things is because I feel like when I used to not worry about it so much, which I didn't have a bad diet, but I definitely didn't have, like, a very clean diet. Right. Um, so I could eat kind of crappy stuff, and it wasn't, like, it wasn't a big deal because, like, I probably always felt a little bit crappy and my body was used mm-hmm. to it. So, like, I would have, like, if I had some fast food, like Wendy's or something, it was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I feel normal. Like, right. it was normal. But now if I were to eat something, like I'll even have like every once in a while if I have like some cookies or like eat some kind of sweet or like eat something that's not really healthy, mm-hmm. I feel it the next day. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I did, I ate bad last mm-hmm. night. Like I, you can feel like your stomach, like everything, you just don't feel right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's like, that's a good thing because then you know, it like you, it's like, okay, I shouldn't eat that for, you know, it's okay. Like you said, it's okay here and there. Yeah. But it kind of reinforces that like that was bad. So I'll avoid mm-hmm. it usually body awareness so many people are sick and don't even know how food is affecting them and food is funny so we'll frequently have patients come back after an elimination diet which is we really eliminate a lot of foods in their diet it's 21 days and then they're allowed to start adding foods back in and so it'll often take a lot of teeth pulling and Mm -hmm. and and forcing and convincing but what'll happen is they'll remove gluten as a big 
common one that people argue with us about where we'll get them to remove gluten and for three weeks they'll be like okay fine I'll remove it I don't want to and then when they come back for their follow up they're coming back to me and they're you're not going to believe what happened when I added <laughs> gluten back in I was like I probably will but then other times they'll come back and say gluten never affected me this way why is it affecting me this mm -hmm. way now and there's something weird and I don't want to act like we fully understand it I can go into what our theory is but it's boring but there's something about if you eat a food every day you have chronic low grade inflammation mm -hmm. that affects your body differently than if you remove it for three weeks it's almost like pulling the slingshot back and right. as soon as you add it back you get this whammy of a response and it feels terrible it's not anything different is that instead of having a low-grade response over 21 days you had all those 21 days at once if you ever get that way with a food eliminate that food until that reaction is completely right. gone yeah yeah it's kind of like the uh, they use like this analogy for tons of things but it's like where they say the frog in the pot of oh, water yeah, that's like water. slowly getting heated up and it's just yeah. kind of like whatever and then you put it in the pot of boiling water and it's like you no know, it that's jumps a, out immediately that's a great so comparison it's like, yeah it's kind of like somewhat similar to I'm that i'm totally stealing that metaphor yeah, from take now it, on take Thank it you. i think that's a good one <laughs> hopefully it'll help people kind of better grasp because that's the biggest thing getting people to just to change change their lifestyle change these habits that they've like hammered into themselves for yeah years and years i mean it's hard it is yeah. hard work i think of my own my shoulder my sinus issues if someone had told me that if i removed gluten dairy that they'd go away i probably wouldn't have believed them right so how do i convince others that no this is woo woo medicine but uh it works yeah so, i would say yeah. that must be another thing that's tough is a lot of people coming in and like not being super convinced um and i think it's gotten a lot better it's lately, gotten a though. huge better yeah. and and another reason why is because the the whole pharmaceutical explosion has really been in the past couple of decades and now people have been on medicine long enough and still sick and mm -hmm. so finally they're starting to raise the question of like okay this medicine worked for a little while but i'm still sick and in fact i'm on more medicine than ever so there's got to be another answer and mm -hmm. so people are getting online right. social media and luckily social media is the biggest pusher of functional medicine because doctors aren't doing the job of spreading this information i wasn't taught this i'm i'm lucky and blessed that People found me for some reason, I don't know why, the universe found me and decided to teach me a little bit about functional medicine. And as I kind of pulled on the thread of the sweater, I realized that, wow, this is real medicine. But if someone, if a patient hadn't come to me and said, oh, I removed gluten and my psoriasis got better. Oh yeah, sure it did. And another patient, oh, I took this supplement, my fatigue got better. You hear enough of those stories. And if you're open-minded enough, you will dig a little further and say, okay, I've had five patients tell me this now. Maybe there's something to it. And a lot of doctors will say, oh, this whole gluten thing is a fad. No, if you just Google non-celiac gluten sensitivity, so everyone knows gluten allergy is celiac disease. No one's going to argue if you have a gluten allergy. That's stupid. That's like saying, no, you're not allergic to peanuts. You're not going to die if you eat a peanut and then they die. Right. That's just stupid. Right. So celiac and gluten <clears throat> is obvious, but the majority of people that have that have gluten issues are non-celiac. So this non-celiac gluten sensitivity thing is claimed a fad and conventional doctors and GI doctors will be like, oh, that's, that's, that's horse crap. That's nothing. Google it. PubMed, look up PubMed, look up Google. There are 100,000 articles, at least the last time I looked, on non-celiac gluten sensitivity. If it were that much of a waste, do you really think there'd be that many articles on non-celiac right. gluten sensitivity? So if a doctor looks at you and says gluten is just a fad, tell him to go look it up. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the great thing about the internet. Like, the information yeah, is there. There's so much information. There's so much information. So I've been super happy that I've gotten into it, and it's been awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. On the same token, there's a lot of stuff out there that is not so true, and right. it's easy to convince someone right. like turpentine. I'm so tired of people drinking turpentine. I'm not is that a thing? It. No. Oh my God, it's a huge thing. 
So I did a video because I was, I think three of my patients had come and said, I have something to confess. I drink turpentine. What are you doing? So I finally went online and looked and saw who was promoting it. And I won't say any names, although it's pretty easy to figure out. Yeah. And the people, and there is an MD that's promoting this. And I've watched the video and her reasoning is so terrible. Like there's really? no biochemistry behind it. There's no, it's terrible discussion. So I did a video on YouTube against turpentine, listing all the reasons why you probably shouldn't drink turpentine, which is a paint thinner, right. paint removal. Um, and that is insane. It is. And it comes from a tree. So it sounds healthy, right? right? So but like there's also natural. poisonous mushrooms and that comes from nature. So yeah. you don't want to eat those and die. So not everything that comes from nature is yeah, holistic that and healthy. Yeah, doesn't mean good. <laughs> so I did this video on YouTube and to, to save time, I, I looked this morning and I think I had uh, 300 comments and only 3,000 views. And pretty much 99% of them are them telling me that I'm just trying to sell drugs and I'm a jerk and really? I'm all about pharmaceutical and I I make money from pharmaceutical. It's all these people really believe that turpentine is beneficial. So I, I tell people it's it, my nutritionist. I've stolen this from her. It's, it's your body. Do whatever you want yeah. with it. If you want to drink turpentine, fine. Yeah. Yeah. can't stop you. No. The drug companies are already trying to to toxify us, and now we're going out of our way to toxify ourselves further. Like, yeah, yeah, that's definitely Jeez, kind of the darker sense. side of the internet. <laughs> yeah, it is. But luckily, as long as I feel like if you do proper research and you're, I mean, those people are also, I think, the type of people that are something about them. They're so easily kind of like fixed mm -hmm. on to certain different one thing. Yeah, and it's like it's like a miracle thing, and they're like, oh, I'm gonna do it, and then like mm -hmm. once they're on it, it's there's there's no anything on earth that's going to be able to kind of like convince them otherwise and placebo is powerful I yeah exactly say. yeah like exactly placebo effect they're they're believing it into reality so it's i mean it's not much you can do but um yeah well thank you again so much for coming in i really enjoyed getting to talk to you this was awesome um is there anywhere that people can follow you on like social media or anything to kind of yeah. get any more out of you so i've got a facebook channel i think it's um philip oob md i've got a youtube channel um i think that one's oob medical but i mean my my luckily my last name is pretty unique so type in oobmedical.com or anything oob in medicine and pretty much you'll find me sweet awesome well thank you again man i really appreciate it this Have was fun the Wellness Plus Podcast. Copyright 2018. Target Public Media, LLC. All rights reserved.